Amen. Good morning, church. It's great to be with you. What a great morning we've already had in the house of the Lord. And this probably doesn't need to be said to a room like this, but we must never allow ourselves to despise young faith. Uh, my story is actually very similar to a lot of the stories that you heard this morning. I, uh, I remember I came to Christ. I made a profession of faith as a six-year-old in 1980. I was, uh, it was at Backyard Bible Study at Mrs. West's house. I remember sitting in her back stairwell, uh, feeling the reality of my own sin, feeling the beauty of Jesus, wanting to follow him as a six-year-old boy. I remember getting baptized as a 10-year-old in 1984. I know it was in the summer because I got baptized in a pond. I don't know exactly what the month or day was. It obviously wasn't January 15th, but it was something summery, and, uh, and I remember that well and, uh, and have walked with the Lord ever since. So not perfectly, that's for sure. Uh, for more information on that, my mother is somewhere in the room. But the Lord, uh, I think, bows down to, to hear little testimonies like we heard this morning and sends grace and help uh, to those to carry on. So, man, giving thanks this morning, filled with joy in my heart, and I hope you're sharing that too. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, would love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. Uh, if you're new to the Bible and uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, we're so glad you're here. And you can open up one of the pew Bibles. There's pew Bibles in the chairs in front of you. And in fact, I don't say this enough, but if you are visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, feel free to steal that one that we just put in your hands. Uh, it's not even stealing because we hope you take it. Um, we'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. And the passage that we're looking at today is on page 797. I mentioned last week that we're going to do something a little bit different for Advent this year, just because the way uh, the Sundays fall, uh, Christmas Day falls on a Sunday, and then January 1st is a Sunday. So I just thought it would be neat to take those four Sundays uh, to talk about the coming of Jesus. And by the way, I, I trust you know, if you've been hanging out at church in church for a while, that's what the word Advent means. We have all these funny Latin holdover words. Nobody knows what they mean. You'll hear people say glory to God and excelsis Deo. Nobody knows what that means. Don't worry about it. It's Latin holdover. Um, same, same thing here. Advent just means coming. And so it has uh, been tradition in the church for a long time during the Advent season to focus on the comings of Christ. And that S is intentional. Uh, we talk about the first coming. We talk about the second coming. Uh, both of those go together in our hearts and in our minds. And that may seem weird to you if you're, if you're new to Christianity, but the longer you read your Bible, the more that's going to make sense to you. The Old Testament, which makes up about three quarters of your Bible, is filled with promises and anticipations of a coming king. And then all those threads, uh, think of each of those promises, think of each of those threads. One of, the, one of the baptismal candidates mentioned today that his favorite story was the story of David and Goliath. Uh, which made me laugh because, in, in essence, that's every boy's favorite story, right? Any Bible story where you, you get to knock someone unconscious is a good story. And then you get to chop off his head with a sword is even better, my goodness. But that's one of the threads, right? There is this thread, there's this picture in the Old Testament in the story of David that one day a champion will come who will defeat all the enemies that are holding us in captivity and allow us to share in the fullness of God's promise. That's, that's what David did. He defeated the enemy that was keeping them from enjoying peace in the land. And then as a result of what David did, the entire army, the entire nation was able to live in the land and enjoy the promises of God. That's a thread that if you pull on it long enough, will lead you to Jesus. That's why we tell the kids these stories 
right? You wonder, like, my kid came home and all he wants to do is throw stones at tall people now. Like, how is this helping him grow as a Christian? It is, it is. You just, maybe not that, but pulling on all these threads. Eventually, all the threads in the Old Testament, all those threads of promise and anticipation, they all will eventually land on Jesus. And not just Jesus in a general sense, they will all land specifically on some great event associated with either his first or second coming. That's how your Bible's put together. Old Testament scholar Barry Webb, for example, says here, all the Old Testament promises about the coming kingdom of God find their fulfillment, their ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, they are not fulfilled in some very general way, i.e. the fulfillment is somehow related to Jesus, but in the very specific events of his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming again. This means, among other things, that the fulfillment does not come all at once, but in two major phases, close quote. So over the course of these two major phases, these two major comings, all the events that bring the story of redemption to a close, that usher in the long-awaited kingdom of God, all of these things have been done and will be done. And that's worth talking about. That's worth singing about. And, and that has historically been the focus of the worship of the church all year round, but in particular during the Advent season. And so we thought it would be neat over the next four weeks to help you see some of that progression, some of that movement. And so we're going to take our cue each week from a, a verse, a successive verse in the old Advent carol, Joy to the World. We'll be taking our cue this morning from verse 1 of that great carol, I'm sure you know it, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Hopefully you have your Bible open now to Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there are three movements or motifs in this particular prophetic anticipation. There is, first of all, an invitation extended. There is a limitation imposed. And then there is finally a glorious future promised. So we'll walk through the text according to those divisions. First of all, then an invitation extended. That's the part of this passage that most of us are familiar with. Um, maybe you, if you're a Bible reader, you recognize probably snippets. I'm guessing you recognized a snippet at the start and a snippet at the end. Uh, if you went through the Canadian school system at around the same time that I did, then you recognized at the end, uh, that little snippet at the end about from the river to the, may he have dominion or he, he shall have dominion from, the, uh, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's actually the, the snippet uh, that in Latin, again, all good things end up in Latin, I guess, uh, forms the Canadian national motto. Did you remember learning that? Ad mari, ad mari usque. Anyway, my Latin's not awesome, but anyway... Uh, that's the, uh, that's the, the Canadian 
motto. But then probably you're also familiar with the snippet at the start of that passage. Because uh, verse 9 is actually the snippet that we read or uh, have read to us on Palm Sunday. At least uh, we hear the echo of that snippet in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, Jesus engages in a bit of prophetic theater. Uh, You probably remember that story if you've ever been to church on a Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus sends the disciples, he's, he's on his way up to Jerusalem uh, for Passover, and he sends the disciples into the town ahead of him on the journey, and uh, they're to, to take the donkey that they see tied there. And if anybody asks them, how come you're taking this donkey? They're to say, Jesus has need of it. And they're going to say, oh, okay, go ahead. So obviously Jesus has arranged this in advance. He's engaging in some prophetic theater. His desire, his intention is to step into the symbolism of this very well-known Old Testament prophecy. There was an Old Testament prophecy that said that the Messiah would make his approach to the capital city humble and lowly, riding on a donkey. And so it was very much Jesus' intention to have people interpret his coming through the lens of this story that we just read. And it works. Obviously, Matthew got the message. When he wrote the story down, he said, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So people were connecting the dots. They understood that Jesus is stepping into the prophecy of Zechariah 9, and he's saying, this is that. The coming prophesied in Zechariah 9 is this coming that I'm doing now. This is that. So let's look at it. The passage says that the coming of the king will be cause for great joy because of the manner of his approach. He will not come to the city riding on a white war horse with his sword unsheathed and his armor on and bloodlust in his eye. Rather, he will come humble and lowly riding on a donkey, even the foal of a donkey. The foal of a donkey, for those of you who didn't grow up on a farm. That means like a baby donkey. Now, in the case the symbolism of all that is lost on you, Jesus is communicating very clearly that he comes in peace. Nobody goes to war riding on a donkey, particularly the foal of a donkey, because the foal of a donkey is a particularly wonky donkey. Parents understand where I'm going with this, right? If you try to swing your sword from the back of a wonky donkey, you're going to end up face down in the ditch like a drunk honky tonky. There's no way I could avoid that. The point is, the point is, a donkey says, I come in peace. Full of a donkey says, I come in super peace, right? Like, I am not coming for war. I come humbly. I come in peace. A, a donkey is middle-class civilian transport, right? Uh, the donkey was the Honda Civic of the day, not an M1 Abrams tank. So Jesus is saying, I come in peace. I come offering a truce. You have been rebelling against your creator. That cannot stand. That will not be allowed to stand. But rather than coming to crush you, I have come first to heal you and to restore you to the rightful worship of your God and King, if you will let me. That's the invitation. That was the manner of Christ's approach. Of course, we see it in this story, but we see it everywhere in the Gospels. Jesus says in Matthew 11, listen to this, doesn't this sound like the king on the donkey? 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, this, is, this seems so normal to us because we've been raised on gentle Jesus, meek, and mild, haven't we? We've been to Sunday school. Uh, we've heard the stories. We, we, we get it. But you have no idea how radical and, and counterintuitive this was to the first people to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. This, if, if you're a Bible reader, you know this was the part that the disciples struggled to get. Because there were so many of those threads of anticipation that we talked about in the Old Testament that did not seem to lead to gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We, we talked about a uh, favorite story in the Old Testament, King David knocking Goliath unconscious and then cutting off his head. Have you ever read that story? Not just the version we teach the kids at Sunday school. Have you ever read it out of the Bible? Knocks him unconscious, cuts off his head, then he picks up his head and he takes it to the city of Jerusalem, which was at the time controlled by the Jebusites, and he waves it around and he says, you're next. That's the story as written in the Bible. And, you th- and so that's the, the disciples are reading that story and they're saying, that's the kind of Messiah we're looking for. The Messiah is the son of David. He's going to cut off Caesar's head and he's going to hold it up to the Parthians to the east and he's going to say, you're next. And instead, he comes riding up to the city on the back of a donkey, even the foal of a donkey, offering peace. And it weirded them out, right? They, they took them a fair ways to wrap their heads around that. Now, to be clear, I want to be very clear, that isn't to say that all those Old Testament threads about conquering and about rule, that all those threads were wrong. They were not wrong at all. They are just temporarily and graciously deferred. The mystery of the gospel is that before the Messiah comes to crush, he comes to comfort. Before the Messiah comes to rule, he comes to reconcile. Before the Messiah comes to impose dominion, he comes to invite surrender. He makes his first approach to the city and to the world, humble and lowly, riding on a donkey. He comes offering peace. He comes inviting surrender. Thanks be to God. Second thing we see in the story is a limitation imposed. So we have an invitation extended and a limitation imposed. This is the part, in the middle here, this is the part of the story most of us are completely unfamiliar with. Like I said, if you're a Canadian and you went through the school system at the same time I did, you know the last bit. If you come to church ever on Palm Sunday, you know the first bit. I bet you this is the first time you've ever heard the middle bit read aloud in church, verse 10. But verse 10 is extremely important. Let's, let's look at it. Of course, the king is, is depicted as coming to the city in peace, riding on the back of a donkey, humble and lowly, verse 10. And then God says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. The I in that passage is God. So God is saying that when Messiah makes his approach to the city on a donkey, so you can pin that to Matthew 21, when that happens, God, I, God says, I will cut off from the covenant community all recourse to the weapons of war. 
He, so now God is speaking about Messiah. He's talking about Jesus on the donkey. He shall speak peace to the nations. And those who follow him must conduct themselves in line with his example. So Thomas McComiskey, commenting on this picture, says here, so it has always been that the church does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or by arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its king and savior. Isn't that good? This is why Christians in their best moments understand that you can't convert anyone by the sword. Now, have we always understood that? Have we understood that 100% of the time over the course of our history as Christians? No, we have not. Some dark hours, right? When we thought that we could seize the sword to convert the heathens. Has that ever worked out well? No. Because right here in this passage, God is saying, I will not bless those means. I will not allow you to extend the kingdom of Messiah through statecraft or violence. It's not going to happen. As I said, it took the disciples a little while to get there. When the guards came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember the disciples asked Jesus if they could protect him with the sword. Luke twenty-two forty-nine to 51 says, And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? By the way, do you get the impression that the evangelical church is praying that prayer again today? Some are. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. No more of this. No more of this. What does that sound like? Sounds like Zechariah 9.10. The king forbids his people the use of the sword for the expansion of his kingdom. That isn't the way forward. And the apostles did come to understand that. The apostle Paul, for example, in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 to 5, says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Do you see that? The carnal sword, the physical sword has been forbidden to the people of God. It is a forbidden means. We are not allowed to extend the kingdom of Christ by recourse to the sword. Now, there is a use of the sword that is legitimate the sword can be used by the magistrate to restrain evil and to promote that which is good. The Apostle Paul speaks about that in Romans 13. He says, he, speaking of the king or the earthly magistrate, he is God's servant for your good. By the way, the, the immediate he in Romans 13 was Nero Caesar, which means this doesn't just apply to Christian kings. This verse was given in the context of arguably the worst king in human history. I'm sure that was providential. I'm sure God said, we're going to get, you know what we're going to do to mess up these people? We're going to give Romans 13 during the reign of the worst king in human history, because that way the bar is going to be set so low that you're never going to be able to point to your prime minister and say, well, he's worse even than Nero Caesar. Please don't, I hope you don't have that bumper sticker in your car. It's not like, bar's pretty low here. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. 
For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So, force and violence are permitted to the magistrate to restrain evil and to promote good, but such things are expressly forbidden to the people of God for the purpose of extending God's kingdom. So let me bring that right down to street level. Very practically speaking, that means that as a Christian, you can serve as a police officer or as a judge or as a soldier. You can serve as a magistrate and you can use force in the execution of your lawful duties, but you can't use those same tools, those same weapons to promote the cause of Christ. Jesus forbids us to have those tools in our hands when we take his name on our lips. Does that make sense to you? It hasn't always. John Bunyan, the old Baptist pastor from the 17th century, found it necessary to remind his people about the danger of coveting the tools, the weapons that are given to the state for the purpose of advancing the gospel. He said, the church, therefore, as a church, must use such weapons as are proper to her as such, and the magistrate, as a magistrate, must use such weapons as are proper to him as such. Bunyan was concerned that the church, in a time of strength, would attempt to seize the machinery of the state in order to put their foot on the scale, as it were, in favor of the cause of Christ. Don't do that, he says. Peter wasn't allowed to do that in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're not allowed to do it today. Now, interestingly, the concern I have is actually the exact opposite of John Bunyan's concern. John Bunyan's concern was that Christians in state power would attempt to use the power of the state to compel belief. My concern, he was concerned that Christians in strength would make bad decisions. My concern actually is that Christians in weakness would make bad decisions. Might we at some point use whatever influence and power remain to us in this culture to seize the weapons of the state, to arrest our decline in the culture? Either way, that is not the weapon that was assigned to us. We were given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we must wield that weapon, and that weapon only, if we want to receive our eternal reward. I know we want the war horse, but our way is the way of the donkey. We speak peace from a posture of humility. That is what our master did, that is what the apostles did, and that is what we must do and can do. This is not a fool's errand. In fact, we were promised success by the master. Old Testament and new, this assurance has been given to us. The prophet Isaiah said, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Do you remember in the the old days when we read from the, the AV, it said what? It shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You hearing that? The Word of God, like head and shoulder shampoo, is never not working. (laughs) 
Do you know that commercial? Mike Shaughnessy's got me watching football now. So I, um, I've, I've seen this commercial because they play it on football games because uh, the star of the commercial is Troy Palomalu, who has fantastic hair and uh, used to play for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And, uh, and he's the never not working guy in the commercial. So he's working at the car wash. He's working at the golf club. He's working at the dentist office. He's your dentist. He's your car mechanic. He's everything. He's never not working. Just like head and shoulder shampoo. You should buy some today. <laughs> that's the commercial. But that's also the promise of Isaiah 55, 10 to 11. Every time you open your mouth and send forth the word of God, it is never not working. That is the weapon God has promised to bless. And just like every time he sends forth the rain, the earth responds as he ordained it would, so also every time you send forth the word of God, it is never not working. When you speak the word of God to your children over the dinner table, it is never not working. When you send it forth from your pulpit in your church, and it's your responsibility to make sure that that happens, it's never not working. When you send it out over the internet or or over the airwaves, it's never not working. The word of God is powerful and sufficient. The word of God did it all in the days of the early church. The word of God did it all in the days of the Reformation. And the word of God will do it all again in our day if we will only continue to trust it. It is never not working. So we've seen an invitation extended. We've seen a limitation imposed. And now in the final section, that bit that we're familiar with as Canadians, in that final section, we see a glorious future promised. Look at that last part of verse 10. Despite making his approach in humility and lowliness, despite forbidding his followers the weapons of war and violence, nevertheless... His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This verse is actually a messianic interpretation or reinterpretation of Psalm 72, verse 8. So Psalm 72, verse 8 says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72, verse 8 was a prayer that was originally written for the coronation of Solomon, the son of David. That's why, by the way, it says may there instead of it shall. It was a prayer. It was a prayer that was partially realized or partially answered in the reign of King Solomon. If if you're a Bible reader, um, if you're doing the RMM, we just finished the story of King Solomon. We're into Rehoboam right now, which is a story of decline. But um, for the last week, for most of last week, we were reading the story of the expansion of Solomon's reign. It's really a remarkable story. Um, King Solomon's empire was a truly global empire. He controlled territory, not just in Israel, of course, but all the way into Egypt, down into Africa, and then north and east into what we today call uh, Syria and Iraq. It was a truly global empire. It was quite remarkable. So his dominion spread a great deal. But as you kept reading that story, and as we got into, I think, the day before yesterday, near the end of Solomon's reign... Of course, it all fell apart because Solomon was not Jesus. We often say that uh, the stories of King David and Solomon are like an arrow shot at the sun. They point us in the right direction before ultimately falling tragically short. And so this prayer for Solomon actually becomes, in the Bible, a prophetic anticipation for the rule 
of the greater son of David, the greater Solomon, the ultimate Messiah, who will fulfill this anticipation perfectly. So even in the Old Testament, it's not like we just pick up these threads in the Old Testament and eventually in the New Testament, they make sense to us, they land on Jesus. No, even in the Old Testament, as you trace these threads forward, they become understood as anticipations of Messiah. Psalm 72 is being repurposed in Zechariah 9 as a prophecy about Messiah. How about that? Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham says here, commenting on Zechariah's use of Psalm 72, this quotation clearly shows that messianic interpretation of some psalms occurred long before the Christian era because Zechariah is clearly prophesying a future ruler, not commenting on a past one. Seeing that? Even in the Old Testament, there was an understanding that all these threads, the David thread, the Solomon thread, the temple thread, all these threads eventually land forward on Messiah. And so this prayer partially realized in Solomon became an anticipation that one day a greater than Solomon would come, a greater son of David would come, and his dominion would do more than fill the Middle East. His dominion would be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And Jesus very intentionally steps into that. If you are an Old Testament reader, the more you read the New Testament, the more you're going to love Jesus. Jesus steps right into that line of anticipation in Matthew 12, 42, and he says to a crowd amazed at his wisdom and majesty, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He is the true son of David. He is the king we've been waiting for. He is the one whose dominion will spread from the river to the ends of the earth. That's why Jesus said, to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say, go and, you know, help all the Jews figure out who I am. He was thinking big. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus compared his kingdom to a tiny little mustard seed in Mark 4, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Are you seeing that? What is being pictured here is slow, gradual, inexorable advance. And that expectation is rooted in anticipations like the one we're reading in Zechariah 9 and 10. Later in Zechariah's snapshot of the first coming of the king, there is a picture of this slow, gradual advance. Speaking of the king's followers, he says, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. So the prophecy says that the people of Messiah, though they have been denied all the traditional weapons of war, will advance like foot soldiers who are strong enough to defeat mounted cavalry. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says here, the simile, the comparison is intended to describe triumphant conquest in the face of overwhelming odds, footmen against cavalry. The fact that they have fought at all and not fled in retreat admits of only one explanation. The Lord is with them. It goes on to say, those who in their submission to the Lord are like sheep become invincible as war horses in his service. Isn't that good? That's what's being depicted here. A powerful resilient, Christ-following, spirit-filled, 
opposition overcoming, advancing church. Praise the Lord. The Lord has come. The Lord is with his people. To them and through them, he extends his gracious invitation. He invites all people everywhere to be reconciled to their creator through his own blood shed on the cross for the remission of sins. He has come to speak peace to the nations. So come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Come, come unto Jesus in this season of peace and be reconciled to your creator. The door is open. The offer is free. The door is open, the offer is free. That was true, though, once before, though, wasn't it? That was true in the time of Noah, Noah's Ark. Do you remember that? The door was open, the offer was free, but the situation was urgent because at a time of God's choosing, the door closed and the offer was rescinded. Do you remember that? And then there was a different coming of the Lord, and we're going to see that over the course of this series Yes, Jesus comes the first time riding on a donkey, humble and lowly. But as Revelation 19 reminds us, he comes the next time. He comes exactly like the apostles thought he would. He comes riding on a horse, swinging a sword, and on his thigh is a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You want to have done business with Jesus before that coming. You want to have done business with Jesus today. So come, come today. I told them not to drain the tank after the last person was baptized. I said, leave the water, have a few extra. We got shorts back there. We've got t-shirts. If the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart and it's today for you, that's fine. There's nobody back there who's gonna stop you. In fact, there's somebody back there waiting to help you if that should be on your heart today. And I think we planned two songs after the sermon just in case. So come. The invitation still stands, as do the restrictions imposed. Those of us who follow the king must still seek to advance his cause in the ways that he has prescribed and in no other, which means we will likely have to absorb some punishment. It will almost certainly feel like an uphill slog against superior forces. But rest assured, brothers and sisters, the Lord is with us, and he has promised us certain victory. So trust your tools. Watch your attitude. Follow the man on the donkey and play the long game. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we marvel at the gentleness of your plan. Lord, you would have been well within your rights to do all of this in one coming, to approach the wicked, rebellious city, to approach the wicked and rebellious world riding on a horse, dressed and ready for judgment. But Lord, in your grace and in your mercy, you came first offering mercy and help so that we could all be prepared to kneel, to bow, and to confess willingly, gladly, voluntarily 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father forever in advance of that day. Thank you for your mercy. Help us to be wise in making good use of it, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.